You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. Your host is Dr. Janet Wright, Senior Vice President for Science and Quality for the American College of Cardiology. How might silkworms help repair clogged arteries? And when will this new technology be applied from the bench to the bedside? Our guest today is Dr. David Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan holds the endowed chair as the Stern Family Professor of Engineering, and he's professor and chair of the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Tufts University. Welcome, Dr. Kaplan. Thank you very much. Pleasure to be here. I am excited to talk to you about this topic. And before we get to your work, I wonder if we could all get on that proverbial same page about the current state of bypass grafts. Describe for our audience where we get bypass grafts now. Well, as I'm sure most of your audience knows, most of the bypass grafts come from another site in the body. So essentially autographs are required, and this obviously can lead to some complications in terms of second site surgeries and uh, related complications. And you've been working on developing thin tubes made out of silk to help repair arteries. Tell us more about your work. Well, with the limits currently on developing very small diameter vascular grafts with traditional biomaterials, we set out to explore one of the different uh, protein biomaterials that the group here has worked on for many years. And in particular, the silk proteins have been around for a long time in in suture materials, but essentially designed as a non-degradable biomaterial in that context. And what we've tried to do is reinvent silk, if you will, into a fully degradable biomaterial substrate that can be useful in the body in many medical devices and repairs. So we've developed a number of techniques to allow us to reformulate this very unique protein into small diameter tubes with you know, extensive control over tube inner and outside diameter in terms of control of the porosity of the walls and the thickness of the walls, and in terms of control of the surface morphology and chemistry. Further, these tubes can be functionalized with different therapeutics if needed to enhance the potential for integration and use in the body. For the vascular grafts in particular, the goal is to match mechanical needs and degradation lifetimes till the body can take over and remodel or regenerate native tube structures. And so these are the areas that we're pursuing with the technology today. Fascinating work. And the silk that you're developing would be a, for example, a partial artery replacement. Talk to us about the utility of these. Sort of the extent to which you could repair arteries remains to be determined. Right now, we're looking at segments of repair for arteries to determine efficacy and utility. But hopefully, as the research continues and the translation continues with success, then we'll, we'll have the opportunity to generate longer vessels and even hopefully bifurcated vessels as we move along. And those are the long-term goals. And David, what are the specific advantages of silk as a biomaterial? Silk is unusual in a number of ways. The first is mechanically. The protein as it's brought to us from nature is remarkably tough. 
And one of the constant sort of challenges for small diameter vascular grafts made of synthetic materials is they don't keep their patency, so they'll collapse, and obviously that would be catastrophic. We can design and make and engineer silk grafts that keep their open structure under uh, high-pressure flows, and they're very tough walled materials, so they, they last long enough and carry flow without a problem. That's one factor. Another factor that's important is we can tailor in the degradation lifetime. So depending on the goals for a particular graft, you could design the graft to degrade away in weeks to months and even years, depending on how we process the material. And then finally, the biocompatibility of silk is quite remarkable. It's a very hydrophobic protein, and therefore the body does not reject it, and it serves to integrate very well in many devices that we've already studied in vivo. So it has a lot of these sort of useful features that overcome many of the limitations with prior graft attempts for these small diameters. And probably the last highlight might be the fact that we can process the protein into these tubular constructs in all water. And what that does for us, it allows us to incorporate sensitive cell signaling factors and therapeutics into the walls of the tube and regulate the rate at which they'll be delivered to the endothelial cells and smooth muscle cells. So again, it's all really about control of all these factors that this particular protein biomaterial provides to us that is really not available through any other material system that's out there today. Well, it sounds like a dream date in terms of biomaterials. There must be a dark side. I'd highlight two dark sides. I'll call them gray sides, probably not mm-hmm. dark sides. The one is the history of silk as, a, as biomedical devices. When I talk to surgeons, they tend to shy away from silk because the history is with their use with silk in suture format. And in sutures, they're really pretty lousy. They're, they're very good for their mechanical strength and very good for knotting and handling but they don't degrade in the body and therefore they leave behind residues that you can see over time as they accumulate under the skin. And again, that's part of the problem. The the history is therefore as a non-degradable biomaterial. And so usually it's a re-education because in the new format, these silks are 100% degradable over time in vivo. And again, that's taken time to re-engineer the process to make sure the protein is properly displayed and processed so it, it has this set of properties. The only other dark side I would say is that it takes time to develop all these new technologies, and we've been at it now for for many years with many directions of new biomedical devices based on silk proteins. And the vascular systems obviously will take more time in terms of uh, the ongoing in vivo studies and on into preclinical as the work develops. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD. It's the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Janet Wright, and our honored guest today is Dr. David Kaplan. Dr. Kaplan holds an endowed chair, the Stern Family Professor of Engineering, and he's professor and chair of the Department of Biomedical Engineering at Tufts University. We're discussing new technology using silk to repair arteries. David, I failed to ask you, is the type of silk you use, is it made in the laboratory? Does it come from silkworms? The primary silk we use for these studies is based on silkworm silk, which is the 
commodity protein fiber used in the textile world. So mm-hmm. it's, it's plentiful in supply and reasonably priced. The difference is we have to clean it up and make sure we remove any inflammatory contaminating proteins before we use it in our in vivo studies. And that technology has been developed to allow these reformulated silks to be used in, in the way we're talking about today. How might the use of silk in this way beat the current methods? And I I realize that we're making predictions here, that you're still very much in the testing phase, the learning and testing phase. What advantages do you see for this type of methodology over grafts that come from the legs, saphenous venous grafts, or the individual's own arterial grafts? Our vision would be relatively simple. This would become almost like, you know, a storage product in the supply room where you could Mm -hmm. literally rip open a a sleeve, pick out the right size graft, the right diameter to match the patient's need. The idea would be it would be a medical device because it would not be preceded with cells, but it would have all of the right chemistry, structure, surface morphology to be implanted sutured easily, and then have rapid ingrowth and covering by endothelial cells. And at least in our initial in vivo work, this is what we see, but it's early days, but that is the goal. And so I see this as a major advance if we get there because essentially then you can have an off-the-shelf item fully sterilized ahead of time and fully functional once rehydrated. That's where we're trying to go. And David, the average person, and I'm, I'm one of those, might worry that a body could reject something made by a silkworm. Is that a problem? It's a common concern. There's a couple of ways I can sort of fill in a few uh, data gaps on that. One is if you look at the worldwide use of silk just as clothing, even as the sutures we talked about, et cetera, it's rare to find anyone that has an allergic response to silk. So, And that's the non-purified material. So think about that as the worst-case scenario. And most of the reactions to that would be the contaminating proteins that we remove in the process. The second is we've explored, and many other labs have explored, many in vivo studies all the way to human studies with the protein. And it, it serves as a very good compatible material in the body. Initial response is relatively tempered, and it goes away quickly. And that's part of the initial degradation that happens due to proteolytic activity. So you want a little bit, but you don't want too much, and that's where we fit. And the last clue always comes from even the early days of my own studies with silk, where we went to a number of uh, companies to ask for silk antibodies to be raised in animals for our studies. And it was extremely difficult to find any system that worked well to generate significant levels of antibodies. So again, I think it comes back to the very hydrophobic nature of the protein, the very slow degradation process and so on, which is why we have a fairly very nice biocompatible material. You know, it's so tempting for me to ask you how close this technology is to getting into clinical practice. And by all means, answer that if you'd like. But perhaps you could also expand on that and say what steps are necessary between now and the time of that vision that you just spoke about, being able to rip open a perfectly sized graph in the uh, OR. I'll answer it in two ways. I, I think we understand the technology enough to be able to prepare, store, and deliver these structures today. It may not be optimized, but we can do all that. The technology platform is here. The challenge today is, uh, as you hear, I'm sure, with many of your interviewees, but it's one of you know, going from the bench and from small animal studies and limited large animal studies to the next step, which is a comprehensive long-term 
set of large animal studies and then preclinical human trials. That takes time and obviously it takes a lot of funding. And so that's really the barrier to the next steps. And those are things we're, we're vigorously pursuing, obviously, to come overcome those limitations right now. Are you looking at other materials, investigating their use, either in arteries or uh, cardiac situations otherwise? The honest answer is we found nothing that competes as well, at least in our hands and based on literature or data, to the silk. And so really we're pretty focused on this protein for a range of devices like this because of you know, the issues I mentioned earlier, mechanics, water processing, and controlled degradation lifetimes. How about other contributions of biomedical engineering to solve many of the thorny problems we have? What would you like to share with our audience about your field? Well, I think the integration of biomedical engineers with clinical needs has really taken everything to the next level in terms of what's possible by integrating biology and engineering science into new devices. And I think we're just at the tip of the iceberg. You know, I see it in our own faculty. If I look around at their various programs, whether it's new medical imaging approaches, the ability to direct stem cells in different directions, new implants, whether it's for bone and cartilage repair or recording brain signaling and function. I mean, it's just an endless stream of significant advancements. And, you know, over the next uh, five to 10 years, I think you'll see these gradually infiltrating into the clinic and into patients to make things better. And so I'm quite optimistic. How about making a prediction in our closing couple of minutes? Where do you think the advances will occur first? And I know this is conjecture, but it's lovely for us to have a chance to hear what someone leading this field might predict we would uh, see next. I mean, a few things certainly stand out in my mind, and those are, I'll call them the easier targets, if you will, and that's Mm -hmm. um, the ability to reconstruct, let's call it the soft and hard tissues. So everything from bone to just adipose tissue, which can be useful for many therapeutic treatments. I think those technologies we already have a good handle on. There's lots of labs that are making great headway, and again, it's getting to preclinical and on that will hopefully demonstrate proof of concept. So I I see that as in really good shape today. I think the other end of the spectrum is the tremendous advancements in using various optical imaging tools to diagnose what's going on. So without having to invade the body, but just look from the outside in. And those tools have advanced to the point where I think you'll see better and better ability to diagnose everything from blood diseases to brain function simply by putting probes on the outside of the skin and determining what's going on inside. So I'll pick out those as a few quick examples, but there's probably many more that we could talk about. We've been talking with Dr. David Kaplan about new technology using silk to repair arteries and also really enjoying some time to predict how biomedical engineering and the clinical community will be working together to improve outcomes for patients. Dr. Kaplan, thank you so much for being our guest today. Thanks very much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Heart Matters is produced in cooperation with the American College of Cardiology. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.